morning, new life. We haven't met yet. My name is Chris, and we're your pastors uh, here. And uh, it's hard to believe, but uh, we are uh, like a month away from Christmas. Can you guys believe that? In fact, it's one month from today that we'll be celebrating our Christmas Eve candlelight uh, service, which is you typically are kind of our second biggest service of the entire year. And so uh, to that end, uh, we actually, for the very first time, because uh, last year we had a, just a completely packed house, standing room only, um, we're going to have two candlelight services on Christmas Eve for the very first time. So we'll have our usual 6 o'clock service um, on Christmas Eve, but we'll also have a 4 o'clock service that we'll be adding. And so to that end, we have uh, printed up these really nifty Christmas Eve candlelight service uh, invite cards for you guys to use. Now, you can find these right by the front doors in a little basket as you exit. One of them is this really kind of cool uh, red, classy-looking Christmas card. Another one here is kind of a more uh, modern, uh, edgy one. So we got the boomers covered. We got the millennials covered. Um, we will not judge you based on which one you pick out. Uh, but they're bo- listen, they're both cool. They're both cool. So uh, no judgment. Uh, would, encourage me to, would encourage you to grab at least three or four uh, and be, be thinking about and praying about, man, who, who in my life needs to be here on Christmas Eve so they can hear the good news that there is a God in heaven who loves them so much that he sent his only son, Jesus, to save them. I mean, that's our only hope, isn't it, for all of us? And so, again, all the studies out there kind of show there are two times a year when people are willing to come to church if somebody they know will invite them. So it's Easter, and it's also Christmas time. And so be thinking about, man, what, who, you know, who do I work with? Who, who, who do I live same neighborhood with? Who do I go to school with? Who's a classmate that needs to be here and hear that glorious good news that there's a God who loves them? So, again, take, take a handful of those with you. Be thinking about who you can hand them out to and uh, man, we're going to have just an epic time here together on Christmas Eve. Now, we're back in our message series on the parables of Jesus this morning. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up or turn it on head for Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. We're going to hang out there this morning. Uh, this is one of the most famous parables that Jesus ever taught. And really what I want to talk to you about this morning is the subject of grace. The subject of grace. Now, now grace is a, is a captivating thing to the human heart, isn't it? It really is. Uh, just last month, um, at her sentencing for wrongly killing a man, a lady by the name of Amber Geiger had to face the brother of the man that she wrongly killed. And so this man, uh, his brother, got up onto um, the, the stage or whatever, and, and he told her uh, that, he, that he forgives her. And he looked at her in the eye and he said, I forgive you and I love you and I want you to... I want you to know Jesus. And then he did something that captured the nation's attention. So this was all over social media. It was all over the news for a couple weeks last month. And uh, I want you to watch this just for a second. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Please? Yes. (laughs) 
Now, we all want grace. We, we're moved in our hearts when we see grace like that. But I'm convinced that many of us don't really grasp grace, not fully anyway. Well, Luke 15, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to give us a crystal clear snapshot of what grace actually looks like. And when we grasp what grace really is and what it looks like, it is, it is transformative to our hearts. It's breathtaking, really. Now, the parable that we're going to be looking at today is commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. I think that's actually mistitled because the story is actually about two sons and one amazing father. It's one of the most scandalous stories in the entire Bible, and so let's get to it. Luke chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 1 because the first two verses really set the stage for the rest of the story that Jesus is going to tell. So Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, Dr. Luke writes this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And by the way, that's, that's what we do when we gather on Sunday mornings, isn't it? We're, we're gathering, we're drawing near, we're opening the word of God to hear from Jesus himself. And so the tax collectors, the sinners, were drawing near to, to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man, Jesus, receives sinners and he eats with them. So here's, here, here's the scene. Jesus is preaching the, the coming kingdom of God, and lo and behold, a lot of the people that are showing up to hear Jesus are tax collectors and sinners. Now, that may not seem like a really big deal to you, but it is, and here's why. Tax collectors in that society, in that culture, were greedy punks who were traitors. Now, I don't know how much you know about ancient Roman history, but the Roman Empire invaded Israel as an occupying force. And there were some Jews who willingly collaborated with the invaders and worked with them to extort and abuse their own people for their own wealth. So just imagine, God forbid, that some foreign nation one day invades us here in the good old U.S. of A., right? And they, and they take over. And imagine that some of your countrymen, right? So your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your classmates, imagine that some of them start collaborating with our occupiers, right? To get rich. So the same, the same people who came in and abused us and raped our wives and raped our daughters and stole our money and stole our land, imagine there are some people around you that start working with them so that they can get rich. How would you feel about those people? Like, I want to throat chop one of them right now just thinking about it. It doesn't make me happy. That, that's how they would have viewed these tax collectors in that day. And so you had, you had tax collectors, and Jesus says you also have sinners, and they're coming out to hear Jesus. Now, sinners was a term that was used sort of to describe the lowlifes in that society. So they were public sinners. Everybody knew who they were. So think prostitutes, pimps, drug runners, thugs, smugglers, even lepers, the lowest of the low. These were the people coming to Jesus. These were the people that were coming out in droves to hear him preaching the good news of the coming kingdom of God. Now, Christians, let me, let me talk to you just for a second. As I was studying this this week, I was just really struck that the, these were the people that Jesus hung out with. These were the people that Jesus chose to invest in. These were, these were the people that he loved. I just think, and listen, I'm, I'm looking at myself in the mirror when I say this. I think some of us maybe have over-sanitized our lives. 
Because listen, when, you're, when your whole inner circle, when your social, social circle, like everybody that you hang out with, when everybody is a nice, put-together, churchy Christian, you're not being like Jesus. Listen, so some of us need to get out of our Christian bubble just a little bit, man. We, we need to rub elbows with the down and out. We need to eat with the social outcast in our society. Some of us need to have our neighbors over for dinner. Some of us need to go hang out with that pagan dude that you work with that cusses a lot and drinks way too much. Look, fo following Jesus should make your life just a little bit messy. You know why? Because people are messy. And Jesus is all about people, even the messy ones. So our life should reflect that. We should be all about people, even messy people as his disciples, as his followers. And so these messy people, these tax collectors and these sinners, they are there and they're hearing Jesus preach. But they're not the only ones there in this scene. There's a second group of people who are also there listening to Jesus teach. It's the Pharisees and the scribes. And they're there, but they're there and they're angry. Now the Pharisees and the scribes, if you're not really familiar with these guys, these are kind of like the spiritual Navy SEALs of the day. Uh, so, some of you guys think you got it on because you memorized a few Bible verses and you prayed like four or five times this week. These dudes memorized the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Like they could quote it from memory. Like you, got, you got nothing on these guys. These are varsity level religious dudes. And Luke says they're there and they're grumbling. And they're pointing at Jesus saying, man, this, this guy, he's, he receives sinners. And he eats with them and he hangs out with them. And what they're really saying is, Jesus, listen, we're the one that have the Bible memorized, man. We're the ones that go to Sunday school every single week. We're the ones that tithe meticulously. Jesus should be focused on us. But instead, man, he, he keeps hanging out with these low-life thugs and prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. It's like, Jesus, why can't you see that we are actually the all-stars in the kingdom of God? Stop wasting your time on these dirtbag sinners. That's the accusation that they level against Jesus. And this triggers a response where Jesus tells three parables that really are one parable. So it's kind of a, a three for one. So Jesus goes, let Pharisees, let me, let me break this down for you like this. And Jesus says, first of all, there was a, there was a shepherd, and this shepherd had 100 sheep, and he lost one of his sheep, and he left the 99 to go and find the one. Now, a lot of his hearers would have been thinking, that doesn't make any sense at all. Why would you leave the 99? You could go and try to find the one, and when you come back, the 99 are gone. That doesn't make any sense at all. But Jesus says, man, there's this shepherd that he loses one of his sheep, and he leaves the 99, and he goes to find the one. And when he finds the lost sheep, he throws them on his shoulder and he brings them home and he calls all of his neighbors and he calls all of his friends and he says, come and celebrate with me. We're gonna throw a party because I found the sheep that was lost. Amen. And then Jesus tells a second story about a lost coin. He says there was a woman that had 10 silver coins. She had 10 of them, but she lost one of them. And it must have been at night because Jesus says she lights her lamp and she busts out her broom. And man, she's, she's searching and she's looking and she will not stop looking and she will not stop searching until she finds that one lost coin. And then she finally finds that one lost coin. And Jesus says, man, she calls all of her neighbors and she calls all of her friends. And she says, celebrate with me because I have found the coin that was lost. 
And then Jesus says, listen, there's going to be more joy in heaven when one sinner repents than over 99 people who think they need no repentance. And that sets the climax for this parable starting in verse 11. And this will be on the screens for you. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now let, let me ask you a question. When does a son receive his father's inheritance? While he's alive or after he's dead? After he's dead. So in a sense, this younger son was saying to his father, Dad, I wish you were dead. Dad, I, w- I wish I could just hit fast forward on your life because I don't really care about you at all. All I care about is what I can get from you. Now, as a father of three children myself, I'm not sure that there is anything that could ever devastate me more than if one of my kids came to me one day and said, Dad, I wish you were dead. I don't love you. I don't love you at all. I just want your stuff. I wish you would hurry up and and die and just go away so I could move on with my life. Could you imagine the crushing weight of pain that this father would have felt in that moment? And yet Jesus says, this father grants his younger son's wish. Now listen, the, the father could have said no, couldn't he? He's in charge. It's his money. He could have said, listen, get, get your punk tail out of my face. You go sit in your room before I get this belt off, boy. I'm going to come after you. He could have. I think most of us maybe would have. That was our son saying he wishes we were dead. But this father in his grace, this father in his grace let his son run. And God in his grace will let you run brother or sister. And God will let you, God will say to you, hey, listen, you think all that stuff out there in the world is better than me? That's fine. That's fine. You run, you go chase all that stuff. I'm going to let you run so that you can see how good I really am. And we see right out of the gate, there's a difference about this father. This father is strong, and yet there is something really tender and winsome about this father. There's something different about him. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, the inheritance money that he had taken from his dad after he'd spit in his face, essentially. He gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into the far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one would give him anything. So the younger son takes all of his inheritance and what does he do with it? He wastes it all, Jesus says, on reckless living. So the guy gets on an airplane, he buys a one-way ticket to Vegas, right? He gets over there and he's just living it up. He's buying everybody drinks at the bar. He's making it rain, man. He's got a bunch of new friends all around him all of a sudden. This guy is out of control. Out of control. All of the local prostitutes would have known him by name, if you know what I mean. Whatever you picture in your mind, when you think about a hedonistic lifestyle, this guy is probably doing it. There's just one problem. He eventually runs out of money. And if that weren't enough, then a famine hits, so the economy tanks. Now our young friend finds himself in a lot of trouble. 
All the friends he once had, right, when he was buying drinks at the bar and making it rain for everybody, guess what? They're nowhere to be found now. And so he opens up the jobs ad section on Craigslist. There's only one job he can find, man, because remember, we're in, a, we're in a depression. This is not even a recession. This is a depression. There's one job in the whole section. It's working on a pig farm. I don't know if any of you have ever worked on a pig farm. I haven't, but I've talked to people who have. I can tell you it's really nasty. It is the lowest of the low. And Jesus says things get so bad for this young man. He was so hungry that he, he actually longed to eat the pig slop that the pigs were eating. Could you imagine being in that position? But the pig farmer wouldn't even give him any of the slop to eat. Man, this is, we're talking rock bottom. Things really couldn't get much worse for this guy. I don't know where you're at in your life, your journey this morning. I don't know. Maybe some of you are there right now. You just find yourself right there this morning. Man, you're rock bottom. You, you wake up and you look at your life and you think, man, I, how, how did I get here? I don't know how in the world I ended up where I am now. And when you end up in that place in your life, you have one of two choices. You can either get angry and you can start to blame your circumstances, man. You can blame, you can blame your parents. You can blame your spouse. You can blame God even and you can get bitter about it. Or you can choose to run to the only one who can fix your brokenness and give you a new life and a new heart and a new start in life. Let's pick it up in verse 17. This young guy's in trouble. It says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, Jesus says this young guy, he comes to himself. So God gives him this moment of clarity, which, by the way, is a gift, right? Many of us have experienced that where God has just given us this moment of clarity. We, for the first time in our lives, we can see ourselves clearly. and We can see the state of our hearts clearly in light of God. Others of you need to pray for that moment, that God would give you clarity to really see yourself as you truly are and see God as he truly is. God gives this young man this moment of clarity and he comes to himself. And he goes, man, even, this is crazy. E e even the servants, even the slaves in my father's household, they, they eat well. They're all part of the family. They're taken care of and I'm over here and I'm starving and I can't even eat pig slop. What am I doing here? So he makes up in his mind, he says, man, I'm gonna go back. I'm going to go back to my father's house, but I know I can't go back as a son. I've betrayed him. I've stabbed him in the back. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell my father, Father, I, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against heaven and I've also sinned against you. Will you please forgive me? Now this is a beautiful picture of repentance. Now you notice this young guy, there's, there's no blame shifting now. This guy's owning his own sin and his own rebellion. He's saying, God, man, I, I've sinned against you. And Dad, I, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. But there's something else that's going on here. You notice he's also beginning to rehearse what I call his I got busted speech, right? Now, you guys know what I'm talking about. He grew up. We all had to come up with some of these, didn't we? Call him the I got busted speech. 
Now, it may be hard for some of you to believe this, but I actually got in a fair amount of trouble growing up. And um, when I had a teacher or a principal about to call my mom or dad or send a letter home or something, I'd start working on my I got busted speech. Even in my freshman year of college, uh, some, some stuff went down in my dorm room and the details were not important, so don't ask me. My, my, par- my parents were going to get a letter, and I knew they were going to get a letter, but I also knew that it took two or three days for the postmaster to get the letter to my parents. And so I had two or three days to work on my I got busted speech. And so that's what I did. And my speech went something like this. Now, now, see, Ma, what, what had really happened was my roommate, Preston, that was, that was his name. Mama, I'm telling you, I, I told Preston not to do that. And I told Preston not to have that stuff in our dorm room, but he would not listen. And Mom, as disappointed as you are in Preston, I am just as disappointed in his actions. I cannot believe, I am appalled. In fact, I've been praying about it. I think we should put him on the Bible study prayer letter. We've got to pray for this man. And I don't think she bought it, but that, that was my, I got busted speech. That's what this young guy's doing. He's preparing his I got busted speech and he's rehearsing it. And he plans on getting to his father's house and saying, Father, I'm not even worthy to be your son. Make me your slave. Make me your servant. There's only one problem with his speech. It's terrible. This is not a theologically sound speech, and here's why. You, can, you cannot earn sonship. You don't earn sonship. Sonship is not based on worth. Sonship is based on birth. And so my question for this young brother would have been, man, when, when were you ever worthy? When were you ever worthy? You are not a son based on your worthiness. You are a son by birth. And so it is with all of us who are born into the kingdom of Jesus. We are sons and daughters, not based on our worthiness, but on the fact that Jesus has made us worthy by his perfect life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. Believer, if you are in Jesus this morning, you are a son, you are a daughter, and you are not worthy, except that, she, except that Jesus has made you worthy and he's chosen to call you son, he's chosen to call you a daughter. Now, what do you, what do you think the two groups, when they were, they were hearing this, this story, right, this rebellious son, he spits in his dad's face, stabs him in the back, takes all the money, wastes all the money on reckless living, and now he's gonna go home to his father. These two groups, right? You got the, got the low lives, you got the tax collectors, you got the sinners, then you got the Pharisees, you got the legalists on the other side. What do you think they were hoping would happen to the son when he got home to the father? I think that sinners and the tax collectors, were, they had to be thinking, man, I, God, I hope the father takes him back. I hope the father forgives him. I hope he embraces him, but that, man, there's no chance that that's gonna happen. I know there's no chance it's gonna happen, but they, they can relate to this guy. Like, man, please, I hope, hope he forgives him. What about the Pharisees? What do you think the Pharisees were hoping would, would happen to the son? Get him. Get him, Dad. Crush him. Sinner. Rebel. Punish him. And this is where the story gets really scandalous, starting in verse 20. And he, the son, arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son 
said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. So the son makes the long trek home from a foreign country where he's lost everything. All the while, undoubtedly rehearsing his speech that he's going to give to his father when he gets there. And Jesus says that the father sees him while he's a long way off which tells me that the father more than likely was looking for his son. So we can imagine this dad maybe going out every single day, looking off into the distance all day long, thinking maybe today, maybe today is the day that my son is going to come back, and every day he was disappointed, but not on this day. Not on this day, because on this day, as he's looking out into the distance at the road that leads into his property, he sees a familiar figure emerge on the horizon, and he instinctively knows it's his son. I don't know if it's by his gait, the way that he walks, or shaggy hair, whatever it is, but he knows that it's his son. He knows exactly who it is. That's his boy. And I want you to understand this, friend. Jesus, as he's telling this story, get this. He's giving us a window into how the Father loves us. I was studying this this week, and, uh, man, I'm just being honest with you. I, I got emotional a couple of times because this, this grace is so scandalous and so overpowering and so beautiful. It just, it, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around this type of grace. And so what I want to do is I, I want to show you seven actions that this father takes when his rebellious son shows back up on his doorstep that were so scandalous that the people hearing this story from Jesus would have just stood there in stunned silence. As we go through these seven reactions from the Father, I want, I want you to think of God seeing you this way, okay? So you put yourself in the place of this prodigal son, and I want you to see the Father looking at you and responding to you in this way, okay? So the first thing that the Father does Jesus tells us is he, he actually sees his son. Now, a lot of people miss this. He sees his son. Friends, I, friends, I, I want you to know the father sees you. Now, I don't, I, don't care, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you're hiding in your past. I don't care how far you've run. I don't care how much pain you're in or how much pain you've caused. God in heaven sees you. You are not invisible to him. He is not far off. He is not a cold or distant God. He is near and he sees you. He sees your pain. He sees you. Now some of you need to hear that and internalize this this morning. The father sees you. The father sees his son. The second thing Jesus says his father does is he, he feels compassion. Now see, I think a lot of us picture God as this like angry, vengeful deity who's sitting in heaven just waiting for us to mess up so he can chase us around with a big stick and just beat us down with it. And Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, listen, you, you think you know what God is like, but let me show you what God is really like. 
Beloved, when the Father sees you in your sin, when he sees you enslaved, when he sees you beat up, when he sees you busted up, when he sees you longing to eat pig slop because of the dumb decisions that you've made in your life, God sees you in that condition. And listen to me, he is not angry. Jesus says the Father feels compassion. Friend, when you, when you fall into sin, do you, do, you, do you tend to run from the Father when you fall or do you tend to run to the Father? when you fall. Because if your instinct is to run from the Father when you fall, I'm not sure that you have a very clear picture of who the Father really is. Look, if I'm a, if I'm a good daddy to my three kids, when they find themselves in trouble in life, I, I wanna be the very first person that they run to. Why? Because they're my kids. My kids, man, there's, there, there's nothing any of my kids could ever do to make me love them one single ounce less than I already do. Nothing. Why? Because that's my son. Judah's my son. Haley's my daughter. Karis is my daughter. And if they're in pain, even if it's self-inflicted pain, I want to be in that pain with them. I want to climb down into that pit and that mug with them. I want to help them clean it off because I love them with every fiber of who I am as a man. There is nothing I would not do for my kids. And Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, you think you know who God is, but you have no idea. Let me show you who God really is. And the picture he paints of the Father is nothing short of stunning, beautiful, breathtaking, scandalous. Next thing Jesus says his father does when he sees his son. And I love this. He says he, he takes off running. He runs to him. He, he doesn't wait for the son to get to him, right? He could have seen his son coming and folded his arms at the top of the, the state, right? And just waited on his son to get there. And he gets there and he's like, yeah, Johnny, I told you so, huh? You got anything you want to say to me? Why don't you go to your room and think about what you've done? We're going to have a party, and I want you to sit in the corner, and while we party, you think about what you did. No, the father takes off, which, by the way, in this culture, dignified men did not do. This guy is a man of wealth. He has servants. He has employees. He would have been dressed in really nice garments. It would have been considered beneath him to run to anyone in this culture, but this dad doesn't give a rip about any of that, that because that is his son. That's his son. So we just picture this dad, he's hiking up his robes, and I don't know, maybe he kicks his sandals off, and I just picture him tears, and maybe snot, and maybe he's screaming out his son's name, and as he takes off in an all-out sprint to his son. Listen, there's nothing dignified about this picture. This is almost reckless, and the dad doesn't care at all. Why? Because that's his boy. That's his boy. And when his father gets to him, what does he do? To yell at him? Shame on you, boy. What does he do? Jesus says the first thing he does when he gets to him after sprinting to him is he embraces him. Just hugs him. Just engulfs his son in the biggest, warmest 
hug, embrace you could ever imagine. Just melts into his son with love and compassion. And then Jesus says the father is not done there. Jesus says he does something peculiar. He begins to kiss his son, which would have been another really odd thing in this culture. To see a dignified father showering his son with this level of affection. In fact, the Greek word used there for, for kisses is this idea that the father showered his son with many kisses. He just, he just covers him in grace. Right? The whole estate is watching. The whole world is looking on, and the father doesn't care. He's just, he's just hammering him with kisses, man. He's just kissing him on the head and kissing him on the cheek and kissing him on the forehead. He doesn't care because he loves his son. Now, side note here. Let me, let me talk to the, the dads in the room just, just for a second. Dad, dads, your, your kids need the affection of their father. Your kids need the affection of their father. And dads, I, I, want, I want you to listen to me. It, it, it is not manly and it is not godly to withhold affection from your children. That doesn't make you a man. That doesn't make you manly. That makes you a jerk. Now, my kids, they get sick of it. And I don't care. I hug them all the time. And I kiss them all the time. And I tell them I love them all the time. And I don't care because I know one day I'll be dead and gone. But they will remember that their father didn't always get it right. But God, he loved us. God, he loved us so much. And my hope is that they would see in my affection for them just a, just a small little glimpse of the affection that their heavenly father has for them. Dads, please love your kids well. Show them affection. Now, can you, can you imagine these, these tax collectors and these sinners, like the rejects of society, like nobody even wants to be around them. Can you imagine them hearing this story? Like, I just picture for some of them, maybe there are tears welling up in their eyes, or tears rolling down their face. Like, Undoubtedly, most of them, maybe all of them, had never felt any affection at all from their earthly father, ever. And I know, man, for, for, for some of you in this room, you also have never felt affection from your earthly dad. Your dad never hugged you. Your dad never kissed you. Your dad never told you he loved you. Maybe your father even abused you. And if that's you, I want you to know I am, I am so sorry. But I think Jesus also wants you to know this morning that you do have a father like that. You do have a dad like that. And he longs to, he longs to welcome you home. And he, he sees you right now, right where you are. And he feels compassion for you. Not, not anger, not hatred. He sees you and he feels love and compassion. And he wants to embrace you and shower you with love and grace and affection. Now don't miss the potency of this picture. The son is standing there in his father's arms smelling like the stench of sin and death. This guy undoubtedly needs a shower. He probably needs to be in rehab. If we're being honest, he probably needs an AIDS test. He's standing there just smelling like death. And the dad is just hugging him and kissing him. And then Jesus says, he clothes him. He puts clothes on his back, shoes on his feet. Notice the, the father completely ignores the son's speech, right? Doesn't even acknowledge it. So he starts in on his little speech. I'm not worthy to be a servant. I'm not worthy to be a son. I just want to be a servant in your household. 
Dad completely ignores it and just starts calling out, hey, bring me, bring me a robe. Bring me some sandals. Bring me the rings. He provides for his son's needs. In essence, he says, boy, you are never going to be a slave in this home. You will never be a servant here. You are my son. Ring, robe, party, now. My boy is home. And finally, the last thing he does, number seven, is he celebrates his son. He throws a party. Now we'll get to the, the older son, uh, the older brother next week. But it says that when the older brother got close to the house, he could hear music and dancing. Now listen, when you can hear somebody dancing, that's a party. <laughs> All right? There are parties and then there are parties. And this is a party. All right, this is a party. They killed the fattened calf, which would have been really rare. This is a delicacy. The picture of the DJ in there, right? Spinning the son's favorite tunes, and they're just going at it. Pure joy, pure celebration, reckless abandon as they celebrate the son who was once dead but is now alive, who was once lost but is now found. And this is a beautiful picture. Now, the Pharisees would have had a completely different reaction than the sinners and the tax collectors hearing this story, right? Undoubtedly, they would have been sitting there thinking, man, this is nuts. This is so dumb. This son blew it, man. He took all the father's money and he wasted it. Now he's going to come back, man. This guy is a total screw-up. He should be punished, not celebrated. But Jesus is going, listen, God came for the screw-ups. God came for the prodigals, for the sinners in need of a Savior. And he loves them. Friends, this is grace. God is not looking for restitution from you. He is not waiting on you to prove your worth before he loves you. He loves you first, right where you are. And it's his love that begins to change us and transform us, not the other way around. The father takes the entire weight of the offense and he says, I got this. I got this. You just come home. You just come home. You just be with me. You just let me love you. King David says this in Psalm 103. This will be on the screens for you. David said, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west so far, has he removed our transgressions from us? Now I want to close with one, one big idea. So the one idea of this message and we'll be, we'll be done. We'll come to the tables in a minute. We'll celebrate our Father's love for us in Jesus Christ. But listen, if you, if you leave this morning with nothing else, I want you to leave with this. And I'm going to put this on the screens because this is a big idea. It's this. You are the object of God's relentless love. You are the object of God's relentless love. Now, I want, us, I want us to say this together, except for I want us to change the word you to I am. So just a minute, we're going to all say together, I am the object of God's relentless love. So on the count of three, you guys ready? Don't leave me hanging. Count of three. One, two, three. I am the object of God's relentless love. Friend, he loves you. Friend, he pursues you. Will you not come home to the Father today? Will you bow your heads with me? I don't know where you're at in your life right now. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. Maybe you are in that far country just like this younger prodigal son. 
And I don't know what you're thinking right now, but maybe you're thinking, man, I've gone too far. I've done too much. I don't think God could ever forgive me for what I've done. I don't think God could ever love me for what I've done. If that's where you're at this morning, I want you to know that Jesus is saying to you that God's love for you is far greater than all of your sin. And for some of you, God is saying right now, this morning, if you'll just be quiet and quiet your mind and quiet your heart so you can hear the Spirit of God speaking into your heart and your spirit, to some of you, I have no doubt, He is saying to you this morning, it's time. It's time to come home, son. It's time to come home, daughter. Why are you running? Why are you running? Why are you, why are you eating pig slop? Man, I would throw you a party. I would welcome you home, and I would embrace you and hug you and kiss you. Son, come home. Daughter, come home, please. Friend, will you come home to your father today? Man, if that's you, if you're that son, if you're that prodigal, it is time to come home to the Father. It's time to give your life to Him. If you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, I want you just to, to pray something like this with me. Just pray something like this. Father, that, that's me. That story Jesus tells in Luke 15, that's me. I'm that son. I'm that son and I've, I've been running from you, God, and I, I've, chosen, I've chosen slavery of sin over your love, God, and I am so sorry. I'm tired of running and I'm tired of eating pig slop and I want to come home to you, God. Please forgive me of my sin. Please forgive me of my rebellion. Accept me as a son. Accept me as a daughter. And I place my faith and my trust in Jesus and I give my life to him. Father, for those of us who are here and we are already your sons and daughters through Jesus' work on the cross. God, would you, would you help us to live out this type of scandalous love and scandalous grace to those around us who need to see you, those around us who need to see that there is a, a good and beautiful and compassionate Father who loves them and pursues them. Father, thank you for loving us. We pray it all in the beautiful and the strong name of Jesus. Amen.